Hey friends, I'm Allie O'Grady and welcome to Thoughtful Human, the podcast. In today's episode, we'll be focusing on one of the most stigmatized subjects I can think of, herpes. To dive into this subject, I'm joined by Janelle Marie Pierce. Janelle is the founder and executive director of the STI Project, an adjunct professor, and a spokesperson for PositiveSingles.com. Janelle has been a fierce advocate in this space since 2012, working to dismantle stigma by reclaiming STI narratives through both awareness and education. You may have seen her work in places like Cosmo, Forbes, Self, Pornhub Sexual Wellness Center, Allure, and beyond. Now, before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. This episode is recorded back in spring 2020 when, of course, a few of our plans changed. I was flying solo on podcast production at the time, and so you'll notice some connectivity and audio issues as a result. But please bear with me because this subject is so, so important, and I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. Now, if you follow Thoughtful Human on other channels, the subject of herpes and STIs might feel a little random to you, but it's had a really big impact on a lot of people that I really love. I've seen the unique and disproportionate shame surrounding herpes and the resulting mental health and interpersonal impact it often creates for people with this diagnosis. I think we have a huge opportunity to change that. However, when it came to my own conversations about herpes, I found myself stammering, hedging, and truly at a loss for how to support those in my sphere. So I started doing some research and I came upon Janelle and the STI project in the process. And I really hope this conversation helps you and your loved ones on any side of a herpes diagnosis, find empathy, compassion, and the tools to communicate around this subject. Before we get into the weeds, I wanna quickly just go through the basics and clarify what herpes is. So according to the American Sexual Health Association, Herpes is a common and usually mild infection caused by the herpes simplex virus, or HSV. It can cause cold sores on the mouth or face, called oral herpes, as well as symptoms around the genitals, butt, and thighs, called genital herpes. There are two types of HSV, herpes simplex virus type 1, or HSV1, and herpes simplex virus type 2, or HSV2. The majority of oral herpes cases are caused by HSV-1 and the majority of genital herpes cases are caused by HSV-2. However, type 1 or type 2 can occur in either the genital or oral area. And to be clear, anyone who has ever kissed can get oral herpes and anyone who has ever had any type of sex can get genital herpes. As such, more than 50% of the adult population in the US has oral herpes often called cold sores or fever blisters. Most people actually contract oral herpes when they're children by receiving a kiss from a friend or relative. According to the CDC, about 12% of people or one in eight people between the ages of 14 and 49 in the US has genital herpes. However, as many as 90% of people are unaware that they have the virus at all for a variety of reasons. So yeah, that's a lot of us. If you happen to be the one telling a herpes joke in a room of, say, 30 people, you can now safely assume you've just shamed 15 of those people around you who have oral herpes and three to four of them who have genital herpes. Yet with so many people afraid to disclose and face the shame of an STI, we continue to just act like no one has one. We perpetuate the stigma and we leave so many people feeling isolated and alone in this experience when in fact it is so, so, so common. And this is one of the reasons why Janelle's transparency and work is so important. In our conversation, we discuss Janelle's personal journey with herpes, how to check in and navigate conversations with those in your life who are struggling with an STI diagnosis. We talk about trust disclosure and the implications for both romantic relationships and friendships. We also dive into the psychology of disgust and how to gauge someone's capacity for difficult conversations of this nature, as well as why it's so important for people, if and when they're ready, safe, and comfortable, to share their own STI story. Without further ado, please enjoy Janelle Marie Pierce. You know, having read a little bit about uh, your experience, I'm just interested, you know, how your diagnosis felt, you know, day one versus week one, month one, year 10, you know, what are some of those kind of 
what did that transition or evolution look like for you? Sure. For the first, you know, for the first day one, week one, year one after my diagnosis, it was very similar. I mean, the initial, the initial response in that day one was absolute shock and disbelief and immense shame. I felt so awful about who I was and what that meant about me or what that may mean about me or what I assumed it meant about me, what having herpes would mean and how I would be perceived by my peers and by potential partners and what that meant for any opportunity or any relationship I may have in the future was just like, it was absolutely astounding how I went from being in a neutral position in confidence and self-worth and autonomy to plummeting to the entire opposite end of the spectrum and in complete despair. And that didn't actually evolve much beyond that until probably year 10 to year 15 years and years later. And it was a very, very slow and grueling and long-term growth process for me, which is kind of why I do one of the very big reasons, one of my big reasons why I do the work that I do, because I felt as though it didn't have to be that awful of a process of the learning of a moving forward. It shouldn't have to take a bazillion years and all this time and all of this soul searching and research and deep diving into something that so many people experience. So yeah, now I'm at a totally completely different place, but it's always an ongoing, even though I help people now and I work programs and do consultations along, uh, all along the idea of removing stigma and shame and sexual stigma and shame um, and specific to STIs, I'm still working through things as well. We are always learning and always growing and my language continues to evolve and my perspective and perception of others' experiences continues to evolve too. So even though I'm at a much different place than I was, I'm still always and forever, or at least I hope to be always and forever growing and learning. Yeah. Wow. Along that journey, what were maybe some breakthroughs or aha moments that were happening for you along the way? One of the big things that helped me to realize that the stigma was certainly just stigma and really wasn't reflective of who I was and what my character was, was that my experience with potential partners and all the partners I'd had for um, many years, not a single one rejected me as a result of disclosing my herpes status. So my assumption when I was first diagnosed was that absolutely no one would ever want me again. I'd never be able to have sex. I'd never have a healthy, happy sex life. And that absolutely was not the case. And it was so different. The actual experience was the partners that I had disclosed to and I'd had at that point in time, because it had been, you know, 10 to 15 years. And, um, of like serial monogamy, I would, I would identify as like a serial monogamist, whereas every couple of years, then I'd have a new partner, but I'd be monogamous with that partner. But all of those partners, not a single one cared. Their, their response was not even that they didn't care, like a hell, so what? And this makes, this isn't a big deal. When I was mm-hmm. coming at them and disclosing in a way that was super emotional and, and kind of prefacing it with like, okay, I had this really big, bad thing to tell you. And their response was the exact opposite. So that was huge. Um, in terms of my my sexuality and those intimate, sexually intimate relationships. And then beyond that, though, um, because I actually had some horrible experiences with peers, with other women, and um, who did treat me just like the stigma would assume that I was dirty and trashy and a slut and damaged and I deserved all of this bad treatment because I was a bad human. And so at that point, then it was on top of the relationship successes and positive experiences disclosing or, or experiences disclosing where there wasn't rejection and they didn't treat me cruelly. Then I also had a lot of professional success. And then over time, I learned to identify friends who were super supportive, family members who were supportive. And by the time I started doing this work, I had and still do now a wealth of, and this is very fortunate and few people are even able to say this, whereas I have four best friends and they all come from different walks of life and I met at different times, but I've known them all and been close with them for at least 16 years or more. And they've helped me grow and they've helped me to realize that the stigma associated with contracting an STI is 
not representative of the actual experience of living with an STI. The actual STI itself, no matter what STI, is typically relatively benign, the physical ramifications, and it's just the sociological implication, the impact on your mental health, the impact on um, your ability to feel autonomous and to advocate for yourself. All of those things are profoundly negative, However, and they shouldn't be, but they are. So that didn't add up. There was a very big dichotomy between the two things of how I actually felt about myself, who I knew myself to be, that I didn't feel like I was this crappy person. I didn't feel like I deserved poor treatment. I didn't feel damaged. And my experiences with relationships and professionally, I was successful. And in my personal life, I was, I was surrounded by a wealth of support and community. All of those things didn't match up to what the stigma said that we're all just trashy humans and really bad and crappy and should be treated crappy because we did something bad with ourselves and now we're paying for it. And um, so all of those things added up. It wasn't like just one for me. It was all that years over years of realizing that these two things are not alike. Yeah. It is just wild to me that it has continued to stay that way in our culture. You look at all these other areas where we've made such great headway in reducing the stigma and talking about addiction or mental health. And it, you know, it's still in so many contexts. I mean, I've been so hyper aware always because of some people in my life who I've known have had it, but I wasn't even still able to explore it with them. And then the recent diagnosis of a friend, you know, just really heightened my awareness of just really how prevalent it still is in, in comedy, in media, and the butt of the joke. And I was asking her, what is that saying to you? What are you gathering from, from these different outlets? And she said that, you know, it's, it's literally the worst thing that could happen to you. It is the end of the world. That's what all of, all of these jokes and all of these things are essentially saying and, and how it's making her feel. Is that something you've seen since you've obviously been in this space much longer that you've seen progress on, or do you feel like that's still really strong in our in our culture and and media today? My ego would love to say that there's been progress because I've been doing this work for the last over eight years now, and I've been in the public health space for over a decade. But unfortunately, the stigma is so pervasive and so impactful, and and so problematic in in the way in which your friend describes exactly that it is it is the narration is that it is the absolute worst thing that could possibly happen it's like the last bastion of acceptable shaming and that's because what's there's two things that kind of like stand stood out with what you were just saying there first of all there's an overlap in mental health grieving and addiction that occurs um, when somebody gets diagnosed and it can very often trigger some of those underlying things that folks are wrestling with on a regular basis anyhow. And so that it, it can either trigger or exacerbate um, or cause addictions, mental health issues. Um, there have been a lot of suicide attempts as a result of a diagnosis and people are grieving their former self or their perception of what their former self was and what their former sex life and what mm -hmm. kind of behavior they thought they were capable or they were able to do and how that somehow in their mind has changed at this point in time. So there's multiple layers that occurs upon, upon that initial diagnosis. And because the reason why there has been some headway, of course, there's still stigma associated when we're talking about addictions, when we're talking about mental health, when we're talking about um, the death of a loved one, especially because people assume you're just supposed to move on as opposed to moving forward. And the same applies when we're talking about, in a similar way, it applies when we're talking about an STI diagnosis because you never move on from an experience that is profoundly impactful. You, it will continue to inform every relationship, every interaction for the rest of your life. But you can either stay stuck in that, in that very bad feeling place or you move forward from it, you grow from it. And then still, even in that process, even kind of like I said, right at the very beginning, I'm always growing and learning. And every once in a while you step backward and you go back into that space that feels icky. And our society, mm -hmm. the culture around our society is that we're always supposed to be happy. We're always supposed to be feeling good. We're never supposed to feel bad. And those bad feelings are bad, but bad feelings aren't actually inherently bad. It's what you do with them and how you use them and what you, uh, how you process them and where you go with them. And so in that sense, like 
I think it's because, oh, and then what I was meaning to say is part of the reason why there's been some progress in these other areas of stigmatized subjects is because there are people who are talking about it. But when we're talking about STIs, there are very few still who are like myself, who are very public about their status, who are talking about their experiences, and who are shedding light on other people's stories, whether anonymous or also um, you know, public individuals. And so, the, so because of that, the, um, it can feel isolating and alone and the stigma persists. And it's when you bring light, when you bring stories, when you bring that to the forefront, then it can no longer, the stigma can't perpetuate. You know, once you bring light to the dark, the dark can't continue, essentially, if we're using like a little bit of a cliche yeah. there, but it really is true. The more stories that are told, the more that people talk about and share their experiences, the less easy it is to group an entire vast amount of people into one category of junk and crap and damaged and worst case scenario kind of thing because that would mean if, if the reality is when we know and we actually know the numbers we it, from my perspective because i deal with people directly and i know how many people are actually experiencing this kind of thing um that means pretty much everybody then is is crap and that doesn't make any logical sense so but we don't know that when you get diagnosed you feel isolated you feel alone and the resources are few and far between and so that's why that kind of misconception and that kind of pervasive stigma is able to perpetuate. Yeah, there's so much there. It's just, I mean, it is, it, for me, as just a supporter of these people in my life, starting to open up these conversations, it, it was heartbreaking for me to even realize my role in, in not bringing it up, not addressing it, and the fact just my complete lack of empathy and awareness that you know one they're experiencing physical pain and symptoms that's affecting their day the way that they communicate their plans and that they can't even voice that because of the shame and embarrassment and just like really realizing how alone they were in this space and um you know on my end feeling so much guilt and disappointment and myself and not having this awareness and being like, Oh my God, of, like if this were any other thing, we'd be like, how's the X, Y, Z. So that just awareness for me was really big. But then, you know, it brought up these questions of, you know, how do I navigate these conversations and ask these questions in a way that's not hurtful or more harmful in a way that's not triggering. You know, if, if there, I think the fear on my end is, you know, if it's not on her mind today, if she's feeling good, you know, do I bring it up? Do I ask? And then, you know, I, I mentioned language earlier, just the actual words. I, I noticed and got this feedback right away that she was really just embarrassed by the word herpes. And I felt like I couldn't type it over a text or share an article that had it in the headline because really just the word itself was so emotional. Just what is your own experience and thoughts around that? And, you know, we kind of decided that, you know, I said, I want to keep asking you about this. I feel like it's making you uncomfortable. Is there another way I could, you know, just indicate that that's what I'm asking about? And we kind of came up with this workaround in the beginning that felt a little more safe or comfortable. And then I'm asking myself, you know, is that, is that productive or is that part of perpetuating the shame in sidestepping and not normalizing it? And so, yeah, what are your thoughts? Oh, such, I mean, there's phenomenal uh, thought process going on there. And I just want to commend you for being a good friend and for being somebody who is truly um, doing your very best to show empathy and to be supportive. And so a couple of things in terms of the language, like there are folks who will, that it's not uncommon for people to not want to say herpes and it's not uncommon for people to use a euphemism. Um, you know, my glitter, my badge glitter or the H that I have, or, you know, to use a total different word. And part of that is because of their own internalized stigma. So the question that you're asking about, is that additionally harmful? Is that just perpetuating additional shame? Potentially, I think the people who have it get to make the decision of like, are they ready to say it? And um, 
I think also as a person who is being supportive and as a friend, any kind of person who wants to be supportive for somebody else who is diagnosed, you can ask, you know, like, are you okay with talking about this? Do you want to? And would you like me to use, you know, different terminology? What language are you comfortable with? And just so you know, I'm, I'm comfortable using this language and using the, ter- the correct terms um, because I want to bring light to this and I want to make sure that you know that this isn't anything different than any other condition that other people experience and you're to speak to that you I mean you have an excellent point like we don't ask our our closest friends and family members how their condition is every single time we see them so I feel like that would be awkward right, right. we don't say like how's your cavity doing or are you feeling depressed today and you know if we know that our, our friend or family member deals with depression um, we don't say it every single time we see them because that's just strange too I mean that's just not authentic and that's not how typical normal interaction goes but if we think that they're worried or we sense and our intuition says and or um, we do just want to check in because we haven't heard anything like how you've been doing like you seem to be doing really well but maybe I'm not perceiving that well you know I just want to be here and let you know like I totally I'm here for you I support you and whatever I can do to help and whenever you'd like to talk about it or if you don't want to talk about it I'm just holding space for you and your process and what you're going through and you're not alone kind of conversation and, and that can that's going to look different and it's going to sound different for every individual because it's just based on your normal kind of conversation, how you use language and how you you talk with your peers or loved ones and and such. But, um, and I think it's also okay, this goes with talking about any kind of sexual health issue or any sexual health conversation. I get this a lot with um, parents asking me, how do I talk to my kids about safer sex and STIs and sexuality and sexual health in general? And I also think it's okay to say, I don't really know how to have this conversation, but I really, or this just feels awkward to me too, because it's not something that gets talked about, but I think it should because I hate how awful that this makes people feel. And so, um, you know, I want to talk about this, but I might not be saying it in the right way, or I might be making it even sound more awkward or, you know, it's a little uncomfortable for me too, because I'm just trying to practice and get better at this so that I can be a better friend. I mean, there's all different ways in which to say it. And as long as you're doing it from a place of authenticity and, um, and you're really just following what feels good in that moment while allowing and being open to if there's any critique or if, the, or if you get shut down or if the person just says, you know, that's not something I want to talk about at this moment, being respectful and allowing those boundaries to be put up and knowing that it's not a personal thing. It's just a result of this horrible shame and stigma that's associated with it. So yeah, I think you're doing a phenomenal job. That conversation is great. And of course, it's not going to happen all the time. I think it's wonderful to be open to the conversation, to let the person you know that you're trying to support, um, that you're ready and there. And and even if you come across, like especially if you come across an article, like, hey, I saw this. And if you don't want to see more stuff like this, and if I happen to catch it and you're just kind of like, you need to not talk about it for a while, like, that's okay. Just please let me know. So yeah. So if you want to say, um, you know, I did find this, it made me think of you because I know, or I, I feel like I can just understand how awful this might feel and how isolating this might feel. But if, if you don't want me to send this, these kinds of things to you, like, please let me know. And that's absolutely okay. And just, just want you to know that I love you and I'm here for you anytime you need me and whatever. And then holding space for their process as they walk through trying to talk about it and learn the language that's going to support them best. And that makes them feel like they're, um, that they're supported and that they are, can move forward in things. So all of it, it's big and there's not a specific singular answer. Um, but you actually, the framework that you laid out was phenomenal. And I think it's absolutely helping and that's really what everyone needs in regards to this, just knowing that somebody is truly opening up their mind and considering and holding space for that other individual. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings up two kind of big things for me when I was thinking about that. As you're talking about approaching other people and sharing this, you know, it calls into question trust in a way that you don't have to otherwise evaluate you know, with some relationships. So it's not, I think, and this is what I've noticed with some of the people in my life. It's not just, you know, is this person going to, you know, respond positively, negatively, or in a neutral manner? It's like, do I trust them forever? You know, will we ever not be close and they might share this with someone else? Which I think is really 
challenging about the relationship piece and, and friendship. Is that something that you've had to consider on a, on a deeper level? Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, for a long time that truly, um, informed a lot of my relationships in particular with people who present as a female or identify as a female, um, because I had so many female identifying people attack me and use it as a way in which to, um, cause further harm and in a way in which to degrade if they were jealous or to talk back or talk behind my back about me. And it was especially because when I contracted herpes, I was 16. And so teenagers can be pretty rough on each other in particular around that age. And, um, you know, our brains don't even stop developing until we're 25. So there's a lot of growth that's happening there and learning and figuring out how to, how to be um, supportive and good humans to one another is really just a part of that process. And so I experienced that really firsthand. And for many, many years, I didn't tell anyone because I didn't trust anyone because the couple of people I had trusted with it had then shared it with tons of other people. And it really caused massive amounts of harm and long-term trauma that I had to process. So yeah, that is a huge consideration. And that's part of how that disclosure and opening up and um, now there's another side to look at that, I think, and part of the reason why I was so petrified of anyone knowing people within my social circles, addition, peers, anybody else, was because I had not walked through my own internalized stigma and shame. And so that fear was a, a product of me still holding so much shame as a result of having an STI and herpes in particular. And I was stigmatizing myself. That internalized stigma yeah. was coming right back. The stigma externally was coming right back to me and I was processing it and saying, yep, I deserve this. And um, this is what is going to happen in all situations because this is how people are going to treat people with STIs, which is not necessarily the case. Those were actually just some really crappy friends. And if you're feeling that absolutely petrified, it's probably because there's some work to do around how you actually feel about yourself in general. And that's okay. And it's okay to feel petrified about that and to not be ready and to not feel safe sharing with anyone. Um, but I would encourage everyone who has an STI to find someone to start having that conversation with, because again, you can't, um, darkness can't exist if you shine light on it. And I mean, I hate to use just such a, such a simple cliche, but it really, you know, skeletons exist in the closet because they stay in the closet and are um, the things that we think are horrible about us are really some of the ways in which that we can actually bond with one another because everybody holds something that they're massively ashamed about. Everyone holds some sort of shame. It might not be the same, um, but it oftentimes actually builds intimacy and trust when you do open up yourself to that vulnerability. But vulnerability is hard. It's the hardest thing in our culture. Our culture does not encourage that. We always want to be in control. We want to know what the outcome is going to be. We want the least amount of risk. We're very, mm -hmm. we're very content and comfortable in our everyday practice and routine. So vulnerability, though, really does breed that human connection that we also very much need. So I want to challenge it. It's okay to feel that way, but I would challenge to not feel that way forever and to try your best to move forward and to find someone to have that conversation with because you might find someone like Allie who is super receptive, is very open, is trying to grow herself and is trying to learn and trying to be a person that somebody can go to and, you know, can share with and know that they will be okay and not alone. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a theme I've experienced time and time again with the most painful and traumatic experiences that I've gone through where you hold them so closely. And if people do violate this trust and don't honor the experience, you just like, oh man, you just want to suck those words right back into your mouth and like crawl into a hole. On the other end, when you share them and they're, and they're received or matched and you find and can build community around and uh, through this this pain, it's some of the most meaningful relationships that can exist. And it's such a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, is what leads so many of us to find, you know, blessings or whatever you want to call them in some of the worst things that have happened to us, right? And, and you know, mm -hmm. realizing that it actually could have been no other way. You know, I couldn't have come to this version of myself or built these relationships or felt empathy had I not gone through this thing. 
which I think is, you mentioned a couple of things that I, that I've heard and read that I imagine you hear a lot, which is this idea of deserving this, deserving this treatment from others or deserving um, this condition in general. And I've noticed, you know, this idea that people think that they've created this infection or disease, you know, like as if they didn't get it from someone else, that we're, no one sat here and created this thing. It, but somehow, because it's such a private and personal thing, people think they're the only ones that have ever gone through this. I know for me with addiction in my family, I'm like, there's, this has taken such wild and dark turns. There's no one in the world that could have ever, could ever understand or been through these kinds of things. And then you sit in a room with other families and you're like, oh, that's exactly what happened to me. Um, and you realize it's right. It's so common. You know, for addiction, it's one in seven. For HSV2, I, I think I have here the statistic is one in eight people. It's like, so I, I've been noticing this and, you know, I was looking in, in researching uh, for my friend, I was looking at, you know, where, where can she find community and safe space to talk with other people to, to make her realize, you know, more so that she's not alone and, and talk with people at other points in their journey. And, you know, I, I came across all of these, um, you know, secret or private Facebook groups. And there was this whole process to get in to these groups. And I've been thinking more and more about that. At first I was like, this is great that people are taking it seriously and really trying to create a space that is private and safe to be open about these things. On the other hand, I'm sitting there asking the same question where I'm like, is this, this is exactly the problem. If these thousands of people could find a way to be honest about it, then there's this ripple effect of thousands and thousands of people that realize that we all have this and it's, it's not that big of a deal. But then I feel like culturally and societally, there's this, there's this weird message we're trying to send, which is one, that it's not that big of a deal. This narrative around it is false. But on the other hand, that it's such a big deal emotionally that we have to be sensitive to it. We have to have empathy around it. And I feel like that's, that's kind of where this communication struggle is happening and where a lot of people miss, where you're either completely minimizing it, it's no big deal, let's make it a joke, or it's the end of the world, which is also problematic. Do you have any mm -hmm. thoughts around how, oh my how gosh. we marry these and, you know, build this empathy culturally um, where we respect the, the weight and emotional trauma that goes along with this experience while, you know, not, not putting people in a box and making them feel like it's the worst thing in the world? It's interesting you mentioned the support groups too, because there's different types of resources and different types of resources are going to work for different types of people. So, mm -hmm. so many people contract an STI. So over 80% of all people of, I'm sorry, over 80% of all sexually active people contract an STI at some mm -hmm. point in their lives, over 80%. And even the number around HSV2, that's HSV2 genitally. And that's, that's anywhere between one and six and one and eight, but it's likely much higher mm -hmm. because HSV2 and HSV1 is not blanket tested. It's not even currently recommended testing yeah. um, by the CDC. And so unless you have signs or symptoms, which is actually not common, the most common sign or symptom of all STIs, including herpes is no sign or symptom at all. And so unless you have a sign or symptom, um, which is not as common as you might assume. And then secondarily, or if you have engaged in activity with someone who you know has an HSV infection, otherwise you're not going to get tested. It's not a part of an STI panel and it's just not a regular blanket testing because of many of different reasons that I won't go into in this specific conversation, but, or at least at, you know, the, the idea that I'm going with right now. So the point is, is that, Tons more people than you even know have it. So the idea that anyone could be deserving of it is part of the moral um, 
the moral subjectivity that's associated with all STIs. And that is incredibly harmful because STIs, if over 80% of all sexually active people contract an STI, but most don't know it because most don't have signs or symptoms. But if over 80% of all sexually active humans in the entire world, that means that over 80% of people are deserving and dirty and damaged and trashy and whores and sluts. No, that doesn't make sense. Over 80% of people can't be these pejorative terms. We just don't, everybody who contracts it doesn't know anyone. They don't think they know anyone anyways, because everyone is so isolated. So part of that then leads into, if we're so isolated, what's the solution? And the solution is additional storytelling. And I kind of like it to liken this to like the LGBTQ movement in the early 80s. If you would have asked a random stranger on the street, do you know anyone who identifies as LGBTQ? And even at that point in time, it would just be LGBTQ or T and Q actually, or LGB, those things. Now we've expanded it, you know, and we're adding more identities and orientations to that umbrella. But even so, most people, if you would have just asked in the middle of Times Square, a random person would have said, no, I don't know anyone like that. So then at that point in time, it's really easy. If you don't know anyone, if there, if somebody you love, care about, admire, um, or are related to and support and are connected to, if nobody you know like that has something like that or is something like that or identifies in that kind of way, then it's so easy to group all of those people into a pejorative box. But the more you start to know someone, the more that people start to share their story and you realize, wait, that's my best friend. That's my uncle. That's my teacher. That's my college professor. That's my mentor. That's the person I work alongside. Then you can no longer blanket these people and say they're all these one things. They're all deserving. They're all bad. Um, and even though, yes, some people will say like, well, you have to engage in an activity to get this. So you made that happen. Well, sexual health and sexual activity is part of our sexual well, our health and our wellness, our overall health and wellness. And the vast majority of people are going to be sexually active. And that is part of their overall health and wellness and necessary, that intimate connection. So to say that because you engage in this and to apply that moral barometer to it is really harmful because people contract an STI after one sexual activity. After sexual activity, if you're going to be a traditionalist with um, their married partner whom they've never had sex with anybody prior to that or never engaged in any sexual activity prior to that. So there really is no rhyme or reason. These infections don't care about your activity, about your history, yeah. about your religion, about your race. You know, they don't care at all whatsoever and the vast majority of people contract them. So then, then you've got these like support groups and some of them are really hard to get into and they're even hard to find to begin with, mm -hmm. which creates a barrier to entry. Um, and it can cause a problem. And some of the barriers that they self-impose make it hard for all people to gain that support and to find those resources. But of course, the intention and the reasoning behind it is because very few people feel safe sharing their status. So like you said, where is that common ground? And I think it's going to take a process just kind of like it did with the LGBTQ movement, slowly over time, people started sharing and talking about it and it became more well-known. Now we knew someone, now you cared about somebody who was in this category or identified in this community, in, in this group. And that, that, like you said, has a ripple effect over time. But um, it isn't safe for all people of all identities to come out and disclose in the way that I have. Part of what makes it easy for me to do this or easy, quote unquote, or easier, I should say, is that I am white, I am cisgender, I am primarily heterosexual. So I have a lot of privileges that help me to stay safe while being a very public advocate. And even while talking about this with friends and family openly, I didn't have as many risks as other people might. So certain support systems and processes or opportunities are going to fit for other for certain people. And it may not be accessible and it may not be realistic for people to tell anybody other than a potential partner for a long time, if ever anybody else. And that's okay. Um, of course, we want to tell potential partners before putting them at risk because that we want to make sure that fully informed consent is occurring. Other than that, though, um, if somebody is lucky enough to have someone that they can trust and tell, then that's where I go back to the encourage starting to have that conversation and trying to, but it isn't always safe for everyone. And so sometimes these supports, these support groups like the private ones on Facebook are really good and helpful, um, but they have their own problems too because 
that exclusivity, um, that that uh, the steps in which it takes to get involved and to even find them and access them creates its own set, set of barriers and um, is not always equitable too. So there isn't one, unfortunately, there's not one, this is a really long answer to your question, but there's not one answer that is going to fit all people because this impacts so many people from all different walks, from all different experiences. And so there's going to be there's going to have to be multi-level solutions um, for each different type of person based on what is safe for them and what is going to be supportive for them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just something I wanted to point out in what you were saying there is just the, the shaming that goes on around, around STIs and this idea, like you're saying, of slut or dirty. It's like, and the way we look at motherhood it's like you have to do the exact same thing <laughs> to get these two outcomes <laughs> and one is praised and you know just so culturally acceptable and the other is like how can we come to these same conclusions with this you know it just doesn't make any sense at all to me <laughs> and it makes me think about also just the disparity with genders and the way that we look at stis with women versus men so can you speak at all to that gender and um, you've already touched on a bit, but um, different racial disparities that are happening within this conversation? Yes, absolutely. So the idea around risk is super big and there are different populations who are more adversely affected by STIs in particular when we're talking about STIs. Um, and usually the language around that is they're a higher risk. They're, you're in a higher risk category, you're high risk, you are high risk, as opposed to because of your identities and the communities and because of these disparities that puts you at higher risk. Not be, They just actually qualify somebody as high risk, which is harmful and very damaging. And um, the language around that has to absolutely change. And some of it is not intentional, but impact is more important than intention. And a lot of times it's just quickly simplified. And the thing is, is somebody's orientation, somebody's race and someone's gender does not necessarily make them high risk. It's um, the uh, racial inequities and um, social inequities that is making it more likely that they'll contract an STI because of the disparities across those communities, the accessibility to healthcare, um, community disparities in particular. And yeah, so that in and of itself is complex and there's a lot more to it. Um, but when we're talking about people with vulvas, um, so not necessarily all people who identify as female, but people with vulvas are more susceptible to contracting an infection just because of the um, the actual makeup of the body and the actual biology. So there are more mucous membranes, and to be really short and not too technical about it, mucous membranes are porous tissue, and um, they allow an entry point for infection. And mucous membranes are in our eyes, our nose, our ears, our mouth, and on our entire vulva and vagina, as well as on our urethra and then our anus, or in our urethra and in our anus. So when we look at the actual vulva itself, the vulva has a lot more surface area area of mucous membranes. And so anyone with a vulva is going to be more likely to contract an infection and is more susceptible to an infection just inherently. So um, yes, yay, we get to be mothers, but we also get to contract all of these infections. And so yay, anyway, um, and one's shamed and one's applauded. And it is, there's this dichotomy, this moral dichotomy where everybody has a judgment around what kind of sex you're having, whom you're having it with, when you're having it, how you're doing it. And none of that is relevant. There's no such thing as normal. There's no such thing as abnormal. There's no such thing as unhealthy. As long as the, the parties involved are fully consenting and informed, then it doesn't matter what you do with your body and other people's bodies. That is up to you and your partner or partners. And nobody else gets to make a decision about that, no matter how often they want to try and tell you otherwise. That is just garbage. And that is some of the main foundation for where the stigma around STIs um, exists and why it persists, of course. So yeah, that's definitely huge. And then of course, different 
communities, different um, racial groups, black women in particular, um, are more likely to contract an STI, not because they are higher risk, it's because of the, um, the racial and uh, racism and the disparities that are intersectional across that specific community. So mm-hmm. um, the and LGBT, same thing, men who have sex with men, um, same applies or similar applies anyways, the same kind of idea. They get categorized as like high risk and the people themselves and the behaviors aren't inherently higher risk. It's because of the disparities across those communities. Yeah, that is so important to highlight and just so poorly understood <laughs> in when that terminology is used, when risk factor is, is thrown out there. So thank you for shedding some light on all of that. So I don't expect you to have the answers, but are there any specific sentiments that have been particularly off-putting and any that you found particularly helpful, comforting, safe, anything along those lines? I love everything Brene Brown does around shame. She researches shame extensively. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just read her book, Daring Greatly, which is all about vulnerability. And I think that those, um, she talks on a lot of like platitudes that apply to all different types of shame and talks about opening oneself up to all different types of conversations and different types of vulnerabilities and why we want to continue to push ourselves to be vulnerable again, even if we've been hurt and even if we've, um, been harmed and, or, um, somebody has broken our trust and that kind of thing. And so I think that that actually, her kind of language around that and um, her advice around that is super supportive and helpful for anyone who's dealing with an STI diagnosis because it can be so, the natural inclination is to go and hide back in your shell and in your closet and um, and hang out with your skeletons and feel like you are absolutely alone. And that's okay. And I also think it's okay to feel that way and to be that way and to sit in that place. It's okay to have a bad feeling and it's okay to feel bad and it's okay to feel feel a sense of despair and hopelessness and isolation. Um, but the, 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 um, what do I want to say where you want to go with it or you don't want to feel and sit in it forever. You don't want to stay there and you can't, when it's something that is very rarely talked about a taboo subject, most of the time you are going to be your biggest and best advocate, even though there are folks like me who are advocating for others in, in this topic area and specific and specifically in this niche and in this taboo, um, taboo kind of genre, you are still going to be your best and strongest advocate. And so you have to help yourself to whatever extent you possibly can. And even if it's just that first step, finding research, finding, listening to a podcast and listening to a conversation and saying, all right, I don't want to feel this way forever. I don't want to be here forever. I don't deserve this. That self-talk that we do that is so damaging as we get in our heads and we say the worst things to ourselves that we wouldn't say to our closest friend. We wouldn't even say to our neighbor who we don't like very much, you know? So, um, but we say it to ourselves and it keeps us stuck, you know? So being stuck is the problem, not the feeling that we're, that we're actually feeling, not staying stuck in that. So yeah, a couple of those things like that's, those would be my suggestions that are kind of brought more broad and not necessarily like, how's your herpes? I love how's your herpes. I think that's great too. I mean, in some ways, if you can't laugh about it too, sometimes that's the best salve to something, just being able to laugh about yourself. And, you know, at this point in time, my latest laugh is that everything I do ends up having to challenge a stigma. Like even though I do this work in particular about herpes, now I ended up getting a pit bull inadvertently. Like I wasn't trying to get a pit bull. I thought she was a boxer mastiff mix and she doesn't have a boxer or mastiff in her, not a lick of it, but she's half pit bull. And so (laughs) I'm like, I'm constantly challenging these things. And I recently stopped drinking. And so I was attending some AA meetings because I have friends who've attended and there's this cool 24 hour Zoom meeting 
that I've been listening to people's stories because I decided that drinking is not something I want to have go forward in my life and be a part of my life. So now I'm challenging that. And, you know, I've done mental health stuff and taken antidepressants and anti-anxieties. I mean, pretty much everything I do and walk and talk is like fighting misconceptions and stigma. And now I'm embracing it and finally saying, I guess if that's my, my, my cause and my purpose, then so be it because I'm willing to do it so that someday somebody else doesn't have to feel so alone and not in this grandeur savior kind of um, kind of standpoint because I'm only one person and I can only make so much of a difference but even impacting one person and having that conversation with one person to me makes it worth it every single day so that whatever helps get you out of bed and get you out of that stuck place it's okay to feel that way for a little bit it's okay to feel that way for a week get a tub of ice cream sit on the couch and netflix and you know whatever it is don't shower or paint your nails over and over again and bite them all off or whatever you need to do that just kind of sit and wallow it's okay to be in that space but don't stay stuck yeah well you are absolutely doing that yes you are one person but I think you are having an incredible impact in this space. I can tell you just myself as a starting point in, in reading other interviews on your website and, you know, your, your vulnerability around it, you know, has helped empower me to open up conversations. And I can tell you, I have spoken about you and shared, shared your content with my, with my friends and, and people who are impacted. And it's, it's very powerful and there is a lot to be, to be said for, for bearing these vulnerabilities and, and really how far that can reach uh, for others. So thank you so much for doing that and the amazing work that you do. That said, where, where would you, so we talked a lot more about the, you know, emotional well-being side of things. Where can people who have specific questions about symptoms, diagnosis, prevention, these things, where would you recommend they start uh, resource-wise? Yeah, I really love the American Sexual Health Association or ASHA is um, the acronym. I think their, their information is both like the clinical and factual, but it's also non-stigmatizing and very practical and relevant. And then they also do have additional support resources that they link to on their site. That would be, I think, the first place that I would say. Um, and then, you know, of course, the STI project, we have a lot of that factual information too, but I'm not the end-all be-all. My identities and just my energy and things don't always resonate with everyone. And that's okay. There's other advocates doing this, looking up hashtag her on Instagram, um, hashtag HSV or ha hashtag HIV, HPV, all of those will lead you to people who are doing similar work. Um, and so that's cool too, to find other advocates and other people in the space if, if my energy doesn't necessarily resonate. Awesome. In, in terms of the relationship piece, I, I feel like, you know, I could have gone a lot deeper there and I've read some stories that really you know, spoke to me and broke my heart about, you know, people who've been married for however long and still like pick fights around outbreaks to avoid disclosing or talking about this and just really understanding like the depth of fear there and it, and it making, making you unlovable or somehow being seen in a different light. You know, either can you touch on that or just is there any tools or, or work on that that people might might want to explore to kind of unlock some of those fears in relationships? Yes, for sure. It's a common, it's a common thought process that happens because even if you end up, say you, say you end up, you're relatively neutral about your own diagnosis and you have find a partner or partners who are gung ho and like, and just, they're also neutral and they're ready to move forward. And you, even if you've been in a relationship for a long period of time with somebody like that, who's on board and is not um, thwarted by you having an STI, it still may enter your mind while you're engaging in sexual activity. Like, are they thinking about this? Or when you get an outbreak, like now, are they reminded and do they think I'm gross? And first of all, our biggest sexual organ is our brain. So we can get really messed up in that place where we can't enjoy and embrace that intimacy because we're too busy thinking about what they were too busy mind reading and thinking about what they might be thinking about. And to climb out of that mind reading, one of the things 
the tools that I use, I teach a masterclass I'm launching. I used to teach this in a couple of different segments, but now I'm just launching a big masterclass about this coming up. And one of the tools that I use is delving into the psychology of disgust. And so the psychology of disgust is a part of our it's one of the human emotions that um, that's like an oldest and um, what's the word I want to look for? Like um, caveman times. Like it's part of our, um, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. It's part of our um, development in terms of being safe um, from years and years back. And it was part of our, our evolutionary. It's an evolutionary emotion that was necessary to keep us safe was disgust. And so we get disgusted by like, worms or rotten fruit or something that smells bad and that is all inherently programmed so that we don't eat something that is going to kill us that we don't put ourselves at risk for infection and things like that now what's interesting then when you think of the psychology of disgust you might naturally assume then well of course the moment somebody sees my outbreak or the moment somebody thinks about the fact that i have herpes while i'm having sex with them they're immediately going to be turned off and they're going to be like yuck and gross and not want to proceed or they're going to think differently about me going forward and not want to do it again actually the opposite is true when we are um when we start to develop an intimate bond with another human the psychology of disgust goes down exponentially and that is because if that psychology of disgust that disgust level maintained at a normal level or whatever it is for us everybody has a different like level of what disgusts them some people are easily more easily disgusted than others but no matter what when you start to form that intimate bond your disgust level goes down and it does because otherwise we wouldn't be able to procreate we wouldn't be able to have little baby humans puking up all over our shoulders while we're wiping their butts and like yeah. we wouldn't do these things because it would disgust us, you know, like you see, you see mothers being mothers, you see like their baby drop their, um, their binky on the floor and they pick it up, stick it in their mouth and then put it back in the kid's mouth, you know, like somehow that's going to, they'll clean off the germs and their germs will like be the buffer or whatever. And I mean, who picks something off the floor and licks it? How often do we see people do that regularly? But you see that and you do that with your kids because you want to protect them. You love them. You don't care that they're puking on you. You don't care that they just, you know, peed on your face because um, you know, you open the diaper and whatever, you see all these things that happen. And, um, and that's, of course, what you do. And this is also why you see partners like popping each other's pimples and, mm -hmm. you know, stuff that normally you wouldn't pop a pimple or a stranger's pimples. You wouldn't say, hey, can I get that zit on your back real quick? I mean, this like, ew, <laughs> right? Your natural reaction is, ew, yuck. And so, but once you start to develop that bond, once you start to develop that intimate bond with another human, it doesn't have to be sexual. And, you know, I just gave examples of, you know, ones that are, are and are not sexual. All of a sudden that psychology of disgust goes down. And so that's what's happening when people are saying, yeah, sure. I still want to do this. Like, yeah, of course. And no, I'm not thinking about your herpes outbreak while we're having sex because I just don't care because I want to have sex with you. And like, you're hot and I love you and whatever it is, you know? And so that's good to know. I like that. Like I'm a very logical thinker anyways, yeah. an analytical kind of person. So if I can put a, there's an actual chemical process an actual psychological stuff that is going on in our brain, that means that's why people aren't going to be as, as worried about it as we think they are. And then the other like logical look at that too, if we look at it and we think now that I've told everyone that more than 80% of all people have an STI, 80% of all sexually active people end up having an STI at some point, there aren't only 20% or only 10% of people engaging in sexual activities in the world. So right. people are every day, all the time, engaging in sexual activity with people who have STIs. We're just not talking about it. We're just not telling everybody like, yeah, my partner has this and this and this, and I don't care. And, you know, I mean, we should, I would love it if we were, because it would make it so much less painful for people who get diagnosed for on a psychological level anyways. But um, so that is, so when you look at that from a practical standpoint, I think that really helps to rationalize those emotions that can spiral out of control and that can we, we can get like mixed up in our head about. Yeah, I think that's fascinating and makes so much sense. And I think the, the argument I might expect in response to that is then, you know, do I have to be in love or in a serious relationship before that it goes into effect? How do you, do you have to disclose in casual sexual relationships, knowing that you don't have this basis. So 
it that would be the natural place that your mind goes like well then you can only have like you can only have a serious relationship with somebody where they're not necessarily where it's not going to impact their perception and then another example would be like when you're hanging out with one of your friends and they say oh my gosh you got to try this like this cocktail is so good and and you hand the glass to your friend you would you hand the glass to the stranger across the bar and say try my cocktail probably not but you'll hand it to your friend because you care about your friends. So it doesn't necessarily have to be this like profound, you know, human or child and parent or married relationship, you know, long-term monogamous one-on-one -on -one partnership. It just has to be somebody like your, your level of disgust goes down. It like starts to go down immediately as, start, as, yeah. as soon as you start to form a bond with someone. So it doesn't have to be this, this, um, profound level of a bond in order for that to be impacted and for that to change. And then also the other part of that is, so this is interesting too, a side note and is, rel is related, but kind of an offshoot is that the people who have a lower psychology of disgust in general are traditionally have had more partners um, in their lives and or have engaged in a different variety of sexual activities. So you may even be able to gauge what a person's inherent and baseline level of disgust is based on how much how much they've engaged in sexual activities, how many partners they've had, if you end up finding that information out. Not that that's anyone's business and nobody is obligated to tell you that or share that with you. But if you end up ch sharing that and having that conversation, as you get to know someone, potentially an intimate partner, um, you can also gauge what their baseline level is. How gross are they, are they about blood and guts and bugs and yeah. other things? Yeah. And are they relatively neutral? I mean, everyone's grossed out about something, and think something's yucky, but some people are more sensitive to that. And those people are going to be more likely to want to be um, already invested in a long-term committed relationship even before they consider engaging in a sexual activity or whatever. But those might not be the people you're initially having that conversation with anyways. You know, there's just different kinds of people and different kinds of baselines of that psychology of disgust. But you absolutely do not need to have some profound giant um, long lifelong kind of impact and, and bond with somebody in order for that to impact how they feel about something that culturally and society says is icky they 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 just have to care and want to move forward and especially too when we're talking about sexuality and once we start to want to be intimate with somebody the moment that happens additional chemicals start triggering in our brain and change our decision making as well so that impacts the, the psychology of disgust, as well as our decision-making on whether we want to move forward and um, in our risk assessment and such. Okay. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to speak on? Oh, goodness. I always get asked that question, but I feel like I say so much and then I just don't... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, really, the my always biggest thing is just to be your own advocate. You know, the more that you learn, the less it feels like it's about you. I think that's the biggest thing is that the more education and the more foundation that you have around stigma, why it persists, where it originates, um, I think then that makes it so much easier to take it less personal when you when you hear something that is that is harmful or re-triggering and brings you back into that. It's much easier to walk past and get out of that space because you can you can rationalize why it's happening and it no longer feels like it's a personal attack. And that's that's powerful. And how can I support your work or how could anyone in the thoughtful human community support your work? Yeah. Um, anytime anyone would like to reach out or seek me out and seek the work that I'm doing, the website is the stiproject.com. And I'm on all social media channels at the STI project. I'm even on TikTok. So oh, come and find wow. me wherever it is that, <laughs> yeah. So that's been its own fun little wild, wild west of social media. So um, I haven't made a video in a couple of weeks, but there's like 20 or 30 out there already. So I'm going to get back to that once I launch my program. But, and if you'd like to unpack and unlearn STI stigma and shame and 
um, your experience through your own personal lens. I launched the masterclass on July 1st and of 2020, and we're going to be running it continuously. It's on a rotating eight-week basis, so you can check that out. That's for purchase, but then I have tons of free resources on all of my social media channels and my website as well. Amazing. Well, I so appreciate you taking this time and all of the incredible work you're doing. I have learned so much from you and honestly, I'm, I'm so excited to share it with, with the people in my world who I know, you know, they, they gave me some questions and I know we're excited to, to hear what you had to say. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm so glad. It is my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thoughtful Human. If you or someone you know has navigated conversations around herpes or other STIs, let us know. We'd love to hear what has or hasn't been helpful for you and always welcome your feedback at hello at thoughtfulhuman.co. If you're looking for ways to support a loved one or partner in this process, I'll just share that in my situation, I ended up putting together a little Google Doc for a friend that had a bunch of personal stories, articles, and podcasts that I found and just sent a link over so that they could explore it on their own time. I did read or listen to each piece to sort of gauge whether they felt appropriate for where my loved one was at and try to avoid any content that might be particularly triggering for the moment. Per usual, there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to herpes or any difficult subject, but in this instance, it turned out to be a good way to offer support without shoving information in their face and might be something for you to consider in your own situation or something to build upon. If you'd like to follow along on our journey or check out our products, you can visit our website at thoughtfulhuman.co or find us on all socials at thoughtfulhuman. And of course, if you found this episode useful in any way, we'd so appreciate a review to help us reach more people who might need it. And finally, if you or a loved one needs access to a month of free therapy, you can visit betterhelp.com slash thoughtfulhuman.